you're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. To open your Bibles with me to Ezra chapter 9, I'll be reading from verses 1 to 15, and it's also in the back of your service programs. Ezra 9. After these things had been done, the officials approached me and said, The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands with their abominations, from the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race has mixed itself with the peoples of the lands. And in this faithlessness, the hand of the officials and chief men has been foremost. As soon as I heard this, I tore my garment and my cloak and pulled hair from my head and beard and sat appalled. Then all who trembled at the words of the God of Israel, because of the faithlessness of the returned exiles, gathered around me while I sat appalled until the evening sacrifice. And at the evening sacrifice, I rose from my fasting with my garment and my cloak torn and fell upon my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord my God, saying, O my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift my face to you, my God, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. From the days of our fathers to this day, we have been in great guilt. And for our iniquities, we, our kings, and our priests have been given into the hand of the kings of the lands, to the sword, to captivity, to plundering, and to utter shame as it is today. But now, for a brief moment, favor has been shown by the Lord our God to leave us a remnant, and to give us a secure hold within his holy place, that our God may brighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our slavery. For we are slaves. Yet our God has not forsaken us in our slavery, but has extended to us his steadfast love before the kings of Persia to grant us some reviving, to set up the house of our God, to repair its ruins, and to give us protection in Judea and Jerusalem. And now, O our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments, which you commanded by your servants, the prophets, saying, The land that you are entering to take possession of it is a land impure with the impurity of the peoples of the lands, with their abominations that have filled it from end to end with their uncleanness. Therefore do not give your daughters to their sons, neither take their daughters for your sons, and never seek their peace or prosperity, that you may be strong and eat the good of the land and leave it for an inheritance to your children forever. And after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and for our great guilt, seeing that you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserved and has given us such a remnant as this, shall we break your commandments again and intermarry with the peoples who practice these abominations? Would you not be angry with us until you consumed us so that there should be no remnant nor any to escape? O Lord, the God of Israel, 
you are just, for we are left a remnant that has escaped as it is today. Behold, we are before you in our guilt, for none can stand before you because of this. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Michelle. Uh, Well, my wife and I have moved quite a few times, moved house uh, six times, in fact, in our 12 years of marriage. And each time we've moved, I've had every intention of making my life cleaner and simpler. Uh, Going through all of the stuff that's out there in the garage, all of the things you've collected over the years, the old CDs, the old books, the, the lecture notes from uni days or something like that, all the stuff that somehow feels important, even though it's never important enough to actually look at or use. Uh, somehow, though, it doesn't matter how many times, uh, I can't get rid of it, and so I transport it from one house to the next, or really just from one garage to the next garage. And each time I think, right, this time I'm going to fix this all up. I'm going to get rid of the old stuff. I'm going to stop hoarding new stuff. I'm going to make everything all clean and nice and organised. But then within just a few short months, the same patterns re-emerge. You have visitors coming over. You don't have time to clean away everything. You just stack it all in a box. And so you have these random toys from McDonald's Happy Meals, perhaps, or that instrument that your son wanted to play for two days, three years ago. Uh, That toy robot that looked amazing. It came up. It doesn't actually work. Or the 70 rat tests that you now have from your school, uh, which back in December would have been enough to get you a, a home loan if you'd sold them on the black market. But now you've just got too many. You can't sort through it all properly. So you just stuff it away. And soon all your Murray Kondo plans are in tatters. You're no longer a minimalist. I hate it when things start to go wrong, when they things, when old habits re-emerge and things start to go bad. It could, could be with anything. It could be a project that you're working on and you're determined not to procrastinate next time and then the same thing happens. It could be that you promised yourself that you'd stop buying stuff you didn't need and you went to Aldi and you came home with 25 kilograms of pool salts or something like that. It's amazing how quickly things start to go wrong and old habits re-emerge and our best intentions are thwarted. And something similar is happening in today's passage in Ezra. If you're joining us for the first time, we've been going through the book of Ezra. It's in the Old Testament, and it's really set at the time when God's people were brought home to their promised land. Uh, They'd lost the promised land in 586 BC. They'd been overtaken because, as Michelle explained, they'd constantly been rebelling against God. But now, graciously, God had promised to bring them back as well. And so they've returned to the land and things have actually been going pretty well. They've been able to rebuild the temple. There's been some delays and certain things have been stalled by by, uh, their enemies. But on the whole, the people are rebuilding their life together. But today we start to see things go bad. We see old habits re-emerge. Chapter 9, verse 1, the officials approach Ezra and say, the people of the Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands with their abominations. And we're told that they have the holy race has mixed itself with the peoples of the lands. They've, they've started to marry with people from the country around them, the countries around them. This is a big blow for Ezra. We met him last week. He'd been come to Israel to rebuild the the culture of the people. He was passionate about God's law, we were told. He was a scribe, skilled in the law of Moses, that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. He'd set his heart to study the law of the Lord, to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. That's what he's been giving himself to do. He's really been working hard at this. And now we hear that they've actually gone directly against what God had commanded. This is that moment, my friend said, where the pastor gets that email saying, look, 
you really need to know something about what's happening in the church right now. And so in today's sermon, I want to look at the sin itself and why it was such a problem. And then I want to look at Ezra's response because I think it says a lot about how we should respond to sin as well. First of all, let's look at the sin. Uh, The Israelites marrying women from the other nations around them. Uh, This is something that God had specifically forbidden. When he was bringing his people up out of Egypt in the Exodus and he gave them his law, he made it very clear that this is something they should not do. Deuteronomy 7, you shall not intermarry with the other nations, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. So it's very, very clear that they shouldn't do this. But why is God so clear on this? First of all, it's really important to note that this is not about race but about religion. See, when some people read this passage, they feel like there's some racism going on here, that God is saying you cannot marry these other races and that there's some sort of uh, discrimination happening here. Some people will say this. I want to make it very clear that that is certainly not the case, uh, that actually God gave space for his people to marry people from the other nations. In fact, we have a whole book of the Bible that's devoted to a wonderful story of that, the story of Ruth, a Moabite woman who converts to Judaism and then marries Boaz. So it was definitely part of what, what could happen. In fact, it was even part of God's vision that uh, people would come to Israel, that it would be like a light, a city on a hill that people would be drawn to and then they would uh, come and see the way that they lived and then be changed in how they lived. But that's the key point here, though, too, that Ruth converted to Judaism. She chose to be with God's people before she married Boaz. And really that's the key. See, unless that happened, God made it clear that it wasn't safe, it wasn't wise for God's people to marry with people from other nations, other religions. You see, the Jews were God's people. They were set apart by God to be his and to obey him. That was his vision for them. Leviticus 20, you shall be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy and have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. That word holy, Peter Adam explains, means to be wholly devoted to God, to share God's values, to obey God's will, to trust God's promises, to keep God's covenant, to live to God's glory, to be committed to God. That's what his vision was for them. And God knew that to maintain that, to to stay holy, to stay different and unique, one of the things they needed to protect was marriage. That's how it's explained in Deuteronomy 7. Uh, don't Don't take their daughters to your sons, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. The most poignant example of this is probably King Solomon, uh, the third king of Israel, uh, son of King David, uh, a man gifted with incredible wisdom, but a man who, who made a real disaster of his life. And one of the things that we're told about him is that he married women from other nations and that he lost his way because of that. 1 Kings 11, we're told that Solomon clung to these wives in love and that his wives turned away his heart after other gods and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God. Uh, Many people followed his example, as you can imagine, and it led to all kinds of disaster for the people. 2 Chronicles 36, the people were exceedingly unfaithful following all the abominations of the nations. So so they're kind of marrying uh, into these other families and they're being changed through that. And when we're talking about abominations, we need to understand tangibly what that means. I mean, these other nations uh, worshipped other gods for sure, but that also meant uh, perverse worship of fertility gods or child sacrifice, sorcery, all of these different things. 
ultimately to the point where God had to step in and judge them. And now God has brought them home in his mercy, but they're doing the same thing again. Chapter 9, verse 1, the people have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands with their abominations. And so God is looking at this, and this is why it's so serious. He knows where this leads, that if they keep going along in this path, uh, they'll continue to walk away from him. So let's be very clear. The problem is not race, it's religion. And obviously this is a, a live challenge for us today too, the exclusive worship of the one true God. There's a direct application here about marriage. I don't think it's wise or right for a a Christian to date or to marry a non-Christian. Many of us will be familiar with the verse, 2 Corinthians 6, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. To be yoked is a a reference to how cattle were bound together when they were pulling a cart, and the, the illustration is clear, just like we saw in the illustration here before. When you're bound together like this and one of you is trying to go this way and the other one's trying to go the other way, you'll be dragged all over the place. And often what happens is the Christian will, to to make it easier, will just go along with the flow. You see, building a a life, a family with someone who doesn't share your religion can be incredibly difficult. Your values might match up in lots of areas, but not in all areas. Christianity is such an entire, all-encompassing and specific worldview and vision for life that there will be things where it doesn't match up, fundamental areas where you'll disagree. And you'll be forced to consider, do I compromise to make peace? I've seen so many people who've experienced the difficulties of this, the tension, the the heartbreak of this mismatch of worldviews. And yet I don't think that marriage is the only application here. Holiness is about being distinct, being totally committed to God. And sometimes our friendships or our connections with other people can jeopardise that. Uh, The Apostle Paul says, encourage one another and build each other up, but he also warns that bad company corrupts good character. So so the people that we're around can either uh, bless us and and lead us further, closer to to walking with God and uh, helping us to understand him and to worship him, or they can take us away. Now, of course, this doesn't mean that we can't hang out with people who have friendships with people who aren't Christians. I mean, we're to be the light to the world. And we need to be in the world to do that. But we need to consider, are we just being influenced or are we being an influence, a positive influence? So that's the sin. The people have not separated themselves from the peoples of the land with their abomination. Ezra can see this and it breaks his heart. And it's worth looking at Ezra's response because I think it says something to us about how we should respond to sin. First, you see just how much he feels the sin. His immediate response is actually physical. Verse 3, as soon as I heard this, I tore my garment and my cloak and pulled hair from my head and beard and sat appalled. In chapter 10, verse 6, we're told that he spent the night neither eating bread nor drinking water, for he was mourning over the faithlessness of the exiles. It's quite striking that he feels this so much because it's, it's not actually his sin personally. He hadn't married someone but he feels it all the same. You see, he understands that his own personal identity is is bound up with the people of God, that he is one of God's people, and so the the character of the entire nation 
affects his mood. He feels the sin, even though he has not done it personally. And then he confesses it. He prays, verse 5, At the evening sacrifice I rose from my fasting with my garment and my cloak torn and fell upon my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord my God. What follows is what one writer calls one of the Bible's great prayers and it's a prayer of confession. Do you see just how frank he is about this, how, how clear and honest he is? Verse 6, I'm ashamed and blush to lift my face to you, my God, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. I mean, he doesn't plead ignorance here. Oh, you know, the people didn't know what they were doing. He doesn't make excuses or suggest that there were mitigating circumstances. Oh, you know, there weren't many women for them to marry or something like that. No, 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 far from that. In fact, he makes it clear that their circumstances makes the sin more serious. You see, he knows the special history of the people of Israel and how they should know better. He knows that they have continually rebelled against God and done these things and suffered the consequences of that, and now God has shown them mercy, and they're doing this now in defiance of his grace. Verse 9, we are slaves, yet our God has not forsaken us in our slavery, but has extended to us his steadfast love before the kings of Persia to grant us some reviving. So, so how can we go back and do the same thing again? Verse 13, after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and for our great guilt, seeing that you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserved and have given us such a remnant as this, shall we break your commandments again and intermarry with the peoples who practice these abominations? It's like if, imagine you occurred, accrued some massive debt, financial debt, and someone graciously had come in and paid it off for you. You'd be so grateful for that. But then imagine you then went out and just built up another debt. Or you had a friend that you were really close to and you betrayed them and somehow they forgave you. And then you betrayed them again. Like in a situation like that, you would feel so bad. What, how can you argue against that? How can you imagine that you could be forgiven, even? And we think, see that, really, with Ezra. See, it's fascinating. He doesn't even ask for forgiveness in this prayer. Do you notice that? At no point in the prayer does he specifically ask for it. He wants it desperately. But he just ends the prayer simply by acknowledging God's justice. Verse 15, O Lord, the God of Israel, you are just. For we're left a remnant that has escaped as it is today, Behold, we are before you in our guilt, for none can stand before you because of this. He just feels it so profoundly. He's totally in the hands of God and God's justice and mercy. Have you ever felt like this? Have you ever felt sin so profoundly Again, that deep conviction that you've done something wrong, where you feel this sorry. It's an interesting word, isn't it? Sorry. It's a word we use for the slightest thing. You bump into someone, oh, sorry about that. But we also use it for the biggest things. When we betray someone, I'm so sorry I did that. When we really hurt someone, I'm so sorry. I, I don't know how to make it up to you. I know I'm truly sorry for a sin 
when the word sorry feels too small. You know, I've, I've used it for these tiny little things and now there's this big thing, I wish there was another word. When I stand in my sin, where it, it rises higher than my head and my guilt mounts up to the heavens, that's when I'm sorry and I know it. That's what Ezra feels here. And it's a very powerful feeling because we see this in the response of the people too. I mean, Ezra must have felt so incredibly discouraged. He's been teaching God's law and now he discovers that they're all just disobeying it. But I actually think that there's a lot of encouragement here because the people want to change. So the first sign of this is it's the people themselves who tell him about the sin. Verse 1, the officials approach me. They're the ones who say, look, we've got this issue here. That implies that they've been listening to what Ezra's been teaching. They've heard Deuteronomy 7. They understand what God is requiring of them and they can see that they don't match up. And so they're coming to confess this or to explain what's happening around them because they want to see something change. It's not just that they see the sin, though. They feel the sin. We saw how Ezra felt it, and now everyone else does as well. Verse 4, all who trembled at the words of the God of Israel because of the faithlessness of the returned exiles gathered around. We're told in 10 verse 1, while Ezra prayed and made confession, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God, a very great assembly of men, women, and children gathered to him out of Israel for the people wept bitterly. Like they feel it, just like Ezra does. And then they're willing to do something about it, to put it away, no matter what. A bloke called Shechaniah comes forward as a kind of spokesperson for the rest of the people, and he says to uh, Ezra that there's still chance if we, if we repent, if we turn from this. So verse 3, let us make a covenant with our God to put away all these wives and their children according to the counsel of my Lord and of those who tremble at the commandment of our God and let it be done according to the law. So he's saying, like, we're done with this. We need to get rid of this. We're going to, whatever the consequences are, we need to uh, get away from this temptation, this difficulty. And that's really a sign of true repentance. What is repentance? We might have, you've probably heard that word a number of times. What does it actually mean? Well, essentially it means that you turn from your sin to God. You're kind of walking one way away from God and then you turn back to him, recognising that you've done the wrong thing. You seek his forgiveness and then you resolve to live with him, to walk in a new way. That's what we see here. And the best sign of that someone is repentant is that they're willing to do whatever it takes, whatever it involves, to live in a different way. They don't just want to be forgiven of their sins. They want to stop doing those sins. They want to be changed. And that's really vital that we have that kind of attitude. I always remember when I was a kid, the first time my parents got me to help out in the garden and, and Dad explained to me what you need to do when you pick up weeds. You can't just kind of grab the top of them, a little bit on top. You have to go underneath, pull out the roots. That's the only way to get rid of it. It's the same with sin. It's, it's like a weed and you can't just kind of top off, cut off the little bit at the top. You have to go right underneath and pull it out by the roots. And that's what they see that they need to do. They can see their sin. They can feel their sin. And now they're resolved to get rid of it 
no matter what it takes, no matter what the cost. But we see that it comes at an incredibly high cost. As we read on, Ezra calls all the people together and he says to them in 10 verse 10 that they must separate yourselves from the peoples of the land and from the foreign wives. Basically he's saying that they, anyone who's married someone from the other nations must end those marriages, must divorce them and leave them. Now this is an incredibly big thing, a very controversial thing, and there's a lot of debate about this. If you read commentaries on this passage, there's a lot of debate. Is is this too harsh? Is this the right thing to do? Have they gone too far? Uh, What's going to happen to these women and children? I mean, it's the ancient world. They couldn't just go and find a job somewhere else. How are they going to look after themselves? And wouldn't it have been better if they'd stayed with the people and then perhaps it could have had a a positive influence on them? There's a lot of questions about this. I think it's important that we address them humbly but carefully. First of all, I don't think that the women and children would have been abandoned. They would have instead been sent back to their hometowns and their families. And secondly, and even more important than that, they had the option to stay if they were willing to turn to God. So in chapter 6, verse 21, we're actually told that there was already a whole stack of people from the other nations who had joined the Israelites and separated themselves from the uncleanness of the peoples of the land to worship the Lord, the God of Israel. So, So that was still an option. That was the best option. If they could, if they, if, they, if they were willing, like Ruth, to turn to God, then absolutely they could stay. But if they were not willing to do that, if they wanted to stay in their own religion, then they would need to leave. So that the problem was, it's a nice idea that God's people could have this positive influence on them, but sadly, too often that wasn't happening. And to separate themselves from the temptation and from the sin, they had to separate themselves from their wives. Now, of course, we're wondering now if we need to do the same thing today. Does a Christian married to a non-Christian have to divorce their spouse? The short answer is no. You see, the Apostle Paul actually addresses this letter in uh, his letters, uh, addresses this issue in his letters to the church at Corinth. As we see all, saw earlier, he makes it clear, Christians should not marry non-Christians, be not, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. But he also says that if you are married to a non-Christian, you should try to stay together. 1 Corinthians 7, if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. He does give allowance for divorce if it's necessary. Verse 15, if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. You know, sometimes perhaps you've become a Christian inside marriage and your your spouse just can't handle the changes, so they choose to leave. Paul says that's okay, you're not bound by that. But he also says that's not the ideal. He hopes that the Christian will have a positive influence on their spouse, pointing them to Jesus. Verse 16, how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Perhaps over time, if you're faithful, believing and praying, you'll challenge and inspire and shift the heart of your spouse by God's grace. The sovereign God will work through you to do this work. And I've seen this. 
heard examples of this, of people whose life God used to soften the heart of their spouse. This is a really important and difficult issue to talk through. I was talking to someone recently who's married to a non-Christian. She asked herself, what do I do in this situation? Is my marriage cursed now? I think Paul is saying, no, it's not cursed. God wants to work in it and through it to do something glorious. But if that's so clear in the New Testament and in our time that you should stay if you can, why was it different in Ezra? Why is it different in the Old Testament? Well, I think ultimately it's because of the history of God's people of Israel and the danger of them repeating their constant history. Remember, this was one of the reasons that they'd lost the land and been sent off into exile in the first place. They'd continually married with other nations, lost their distinctiveness, lost their holiness, that directly disobeyed God. Now God in his mercy has brought them home and they're doing the same things again. Peter Adam makes the point that this is their first sin, so to speak, since they returned to the land. And that's why it's so important. They've got this chance to start again, to do things better, so they mustn't just mess this up. As he says, they must stop the infection spreading to others and causing even more damage. The whole future of Israel is right on the line here. If they don't get this right now, it will fester and take over once more. As Wallace Ben puts it, their identity and integrity as God's people was at stake. If not careful, they could become unidentifiable as the people who worship the true God alone. So they must act now to rescue the future. And yet, of course, they would keep making the same mistakes. In chapter 10, we see them follow through their plan and do this very difficult thing. But we'll also see in a few weeks' time, as we hit Nehemiah 13, that they'll do exactly the same sin again, just a couple of decades later. What really shows us, doesn't it, how often things go bad. doesn't matter how great our intentions are, how determined we are to do things better, how diligent we are even, the human heart just seems to wander and stray. Even when we see our sin, even when we feel it, even when we're willing to do anything to get rid of it, so often it comes back. Even when we feel the consequences of it, so often we go back to it. It's a bit like, KFC. (laughs) Every time I see the colonel smiling at me on that sign, I want his secret herbs and spices. Even though every time I eat it, I regret it later. It doesn't matter. It just keeps coming back. It doesn't, I always have that renewed desire. That's what sin is like. We do the wrong thing. We feel the consequences of it. In that moment, there's like no way that we would do it again. But so often we do. So what's the hope for us? How can we move beyond that? How can we still be forgiven if we continually do the wrong thing? Why would God forgive us if we continually let him down, so to speak? Well, our only hope is Jesus. 
Because in Jesus, we have someone who fought sin and defeated it once and for all. See, if you look at the story of Ezra, he's actually, you compare Ezra and Jesus. Jesus is like a perfect upgraded version of Ezra. Like Ezra, Jesus came to teach his people God's law. So much of his teaching, think about the Sermon on the Mount, was a way of him trying to show what God's law was all about, what God required of his people. Just like Ezra, Jesus was grieved when his people fell short of that. But the upgraded version of Ezra was able to do something substantial about it. See, Ezra could confess the sins of the people, but Jesus could carry them. He could take them on himself and deal with them. He could carry their sins all the way to the cross and finally resolve them so that we can truly be forgiven. We have incurred this debt again and again and again. Jesus took on all of it, the first debt, the second debt, the 17th debt. He took it all on and paid for it entirely. Jesus died for our sins so God's justice could be satisfied and his grace could flow. And so if you want forgiveness, if you feel like you've constantly let God down, that's not how God sees it. If you trust in Jesus, all of your sins, past, present and future, are dealt with. You actually can't let God down because Jesus is there to carry you. So if you feel your sin, it doesn't matter what it is. Maybe you've done it one time, 30 times. Maybe there's something you're stuck in right now. You're feeling the consequences of it. You're feeling weighed down by it. You're feeling trapped by it. You feel it, you see it. You want, you long to be forgiven. Hear this from 1 John. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Like we're crazy if we deny that we don't need forgiveness. But he says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. When we see our sin, when we feel it, if we confess it, he is faithful to forgive it. And notice that. He's just, he's faithful and just to forgive it. It's not that God just kind of uh, doesn't bother with that sin, the justice of it. No, no. He completely satisfies the justice, but in Jesus. There is a price to pay, but Jesus has paid it. And even more than that, not only does he forgive us, he cleanses us from all unrighteousness. He gives us the spirit so that we can have a new way of living. And we can start to overcome these sins. Now, of course, we won't do this perfectly just yet. And maybe there's a time where you feel like, oh, I've been forgiven, I've got the Spirit, and I've still done the wrong thing. How will he forgive me now? Well, still his grace reaches. Ephesians 3, Paul says, I pray that you will know the height, the depth, the length, the breadth of God's love, a love that's beyond knowledge. I pray that you'll know it, but you can't know it because it's too big. It's too special. So if you're here today and you're feeling your sin, feel the love of God. Know that you are surrounded by it 
that you're in the pool of his love, that he wants to embrace you. And then walk in that grace. Walk in the power that he loves to give us. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this passage, a hard passage in lots of ways. We see the horrible consequence of what happens when we fail to follow your uh, wisdom, your guidance. Lord, um, help us to walk closely with you, to trust you and to obey you. Lord, when we fail to do that, help us to see our sin, feel it, and then to confess it. And then help us to feel and know your forgiveness through Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, that you have paid the price, that you have fulfilled everything that is required so that we can be forgiven and cleansed. We glorify you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.